You okay? Hey, it's 11.30. I preached for 45 minutes. Is that all right? You sure? You can handle it? Okay, let's get started. Famous stories are often misunderstood. We can say it even better. There are plenty of famous stories that are nice, but they have a deeper and even unexpected meaning. Classic examples of this come from well-known storytellers, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm, otherwise known as the Brothers Grimm, German authors who wrote in the 1800s. And you're likely familiar with many of the stories they wrote, or they compiled folklore from Germany. Uh, so stories like Cinderella, uh, The Frog Prince, Hansel and Gretel, Little Red Riding Hood, Rapunzel, Rumpelstiltskin, Snow White, we can keep on going. The stories of the Brothers Grimm are often seen as nice, children's stories even, but they're often misunderstood and have a deeper meaning. So a couple of examples. Supposedly children's stories like Little Leonard Riding Hood and Hansel and Gretel seem to be innocent enough to be included in something like a coloring book and read to very young children. But if you really think about it, the stories are actually kind of dark. <laughs> I mean, the ending of them is not just children being punished and learning their lesson. The ending of them is children being eaten. <laughs> and it was, it was even a problem back then that they had so much feedback from their readers that the Brothers Grimm had to include in the front of their collections, hey, reader's discretion advised may not be suitable for young children. Well, the darker, unexpected side of the Brothers Grimm's tales, not just for their children's stories, but even for other stories as well. Take Snow White, for example. What is more innocent than Snow White? Well, the original story, not so much. In the original version, the queen in the story isn't Snow White's stepmother, it's her actual mother. And even still... Her actual mother orders her huntsman to kill Snow White and bring home her child's lungs and liver so she can eat them. The original story ends with a queen mother dancing at Snow White's wedding, wearing a pair of hot, red-hot iron shoes that kill her daughter. That's awful, isn't it? Well, the Brothers Grimm stories are so layered um, that you know someone like Walt Disney can use them, and still someone like... Nazi Germany can use them. <laughs> well, famous stories or tales that are misunderstood or have a deeper meaning, it's not a new phenomenon. We've known about that for a long time. It affects our nursery rhymes or common uh, songs. Think about uh, Ring Around the Rosie. Uh, most people think that that's connected to the Black Death in England. You know, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Uh, others, uh, like other stories, like American literature, The Wizard of Oz. Some people think that that's actually a political commentary or allegory on the late 18th century United States. A deeper meaning. Well, not as confusing or dark as the Brothers Grimm or other tales and stories, today we come to a really familiar and famous story. In fact, it's so familiar and famous, it's the only miracle of Jesus that's included in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the feeding of the 5,000. We know it well, but I think it actually has a deeper and perhaps even an unexpected meaning than we would give it credit for. 
So if you're not there yet, we're in Mark's gospel. We're in uh, kind of the middle of chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 30. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 841 uh, on the right, bottom right-hand side. Mark 6, starting in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boats to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and they all were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is God's word. Well, there are lots of ways we could take in this story. We might see it as telling the moral importance of sharing. We might see it as a nice gesture from Jesus. Or we may even see it as a really neat magic trick or illusion. Well, we'll consider later how these takeaways are off. But from the outset, I think the main point of the feeding of the 5,000 is this, simple. Jesus is the good shepherd who satisfies his sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who satisfies his sheep. I was going to go with the Snickers main point. It's like, you're not you when you're hungry. Jesus satisfies. I thought the shepherd motif is more central to, uh, to this passage. Well, behind the uh, main point of the feeding of the 5,000 is really the heart of Jesus. And I think examining this story, we get to see two different sides of Jesus' heart. I think we see his compassion, and more than in his heart, we see his ability, his sufficiency. So that's how we're going to tackle this passage this morning, uh, noticing Jesus' compassion and Jesus' sufficiency to provide and make good on that compassion. Now, before we jump in, we're in this study of Mark. Uh, we want to remind ourselves where we are in the story. So we picked it up back in uh, chapter 6, the beginning of it, where Jesus gets ousted from his hometown of Nazareth. And now Jesus has returned to the area of Galilee in northeast Israel for the third time. And here he's on another teaching and preaching tour. And this time, though, he sends out his disciples more and more. They're more central to the story. 
Well, part of uh, what we've seen in chapter 6 so far has been the theme of opposition. You know, Jesus receives opposition in his hometown by getting rejection, rejected. And then he warns his disciples when he sends them out of receiving the same kind of treatment. And sandwiched in the middle of the disciples being sent out and then coming back in is the story of John the Baptist, who also received opposition, not just in the form of rejection, but in the form of death. So here, Jesus and his motley crew are traveling to a desolate place off the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So when we fill out the picture of this story, we compare it to the other gospel accounts of it, uh, we see that Luke tells us that they were going to a town called Bethsaida, which is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is really a big lake. Um, Let me see. Oh, these don't have maps in them. Some Bibles have maps in the back of them. You could see all the area of Galilee. That might be helpful just to see where you are throughout the Gospels. So here we are. Desolate place, getting ready to feed the 5,000. Now I thought, since this story is in all four Gospel accounts, this is a sidebar before we even get into the main body of the sermon. So, friends, I apologize. You'll have to bear with me. But I think this is a good opportunity to notice how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John fit together. I mean, why have four books that basically look the same and have a lot of the same information? Well, contrary to something like the Da Vinci Code, these Gospels weren't chosen to serve the agenda of the Roman Catholic Church. No, no, no. It's well established that these four books are the earliest and most widely read accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Like, it's not even close compared to other so-called Gospels. Uh, So, um, if you want to look more into the reliability of these four books, uh, there are plenty of resources about that. I can refer you to some. One that I like is a book by Mark Strauss. It's called Four Portraits, uh, One Jesus. Another that just came out by Peter Williams, supposed to be very good, is uh, called... I think it's called Can We Trust the Gospels? Lots of good resources on the reliability of these four Gospels. But at the end of the day, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the most authoritative books on Jesus. Now, people have used various analogies of how they fit together. Some have related it to how if four different witnesses were describing the same events, kind of like a car accident. If you heard from four different people who saw the same event, you might hear them emphasize different things but ultimately describe the same event. Others have described it using the portrait example or picture. So you have four different uh, portraits of the same person. I mean, we could kind of relate to this. If you go to uh, Sears photo, uh, Sears is no longer open. If you go to JCPenney photo, Uh, and you need new business headshots. I don't know, maybe that's your thing. Um, And the photographer you go see is really into his job, and he tells you, okay, smile. Now give me fierce. Now give me grumpy. Now give me pouty. Now give me flirty. So here we have the same picture in different sides of you, the same person. Kind of how the four Gospels work. So uh, Mark Strauss, the book I mentioned, he describes uh, how 
each of the four portraits break down. Matthew presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and it's the most structured of the four. Mark presents Jesus as the suffering Son of God, who offers himself as a sacrifice for our sin. It's the most dramatic of the four Gospels, because it's just action, 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 action. Luke presents Jesus as the Savior for all people. It's the most thematic of the four Gospels, organized around different themes. And then John presents Jesus as the eternal Son of God, the self-revelation of the Father. And it's the most theological, uh, has the most teaching of any of the four Gospels. So then you can see how each one of them serves a unique purpose to show a different aspect and to highlight a different aspect of Jesus. So I know, I know, that was a sidebar. Hopefully it was helpful. But now we're going to head into the story that's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, on the surface, this is a very straightforward story. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of people who are hungry, and Jesus feeds them. That's it, we can go home, right? Oh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Hopefully, I did not disappoint you. Uh, Well, like we said, the feeding of the 5,000 tells us at least two things about Jesus. It will be the two major sections of our time. It tells us the compassion of Jesus, and it tells us the sufficiency of Jesus. So first, the compassion of Jesus. What do you look for in a strong leader? Plenty of resources on that. I found an article in Forbes magazine. It lists eight essential leadership qualities. And they are sincere enthusiasm, integrity, communication skills, loyalty, decisiveness, managerial competence, empowerment, and charisma. What do you look for in a leader? Now, there are no shortage of those kinds of lists. And while we don't say any of those qualities are necessarily bad, when we try to come up with our own lists, and when we look at those lists, I think one quality is missing all the time. Compassion. Compassion. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is not a chapter in the book about Jesus' leadership school. No. But I think... What we value in leaders reflects what we value overall. And so Jesus displaying compassion, I think compassion is a really underrated value that Jesus has. And so where we see Jesus' compassion is really in the buildup to the miracle, what happens before he feeds the 5,000. And we see him displaying compassion to two different groups. He displays it to his disciples And he displays compassion to the crowds overall. So first we see Jesus' compassion to his disciples. Now, disciple, we may take for granted, uh, knowing what it means. It literally means students, pupil, or learner. Mark here in verse 30 uses the word apostle, which means sent out one. To show that Jesus' disciples were just sent out by him. And I think to differentiate between John's disciples that he mentioned in verse 29, the verse before. But anyway, what happens at the beginning of this section? Just straightforward, his disciples or apostles come back after they were sent out by Jesus back in verse 7 of chapter 6. And then Jesus tells them they're going to get away to rest. Now, they weren't going to Bora Bora. They weren't going to the Bahamas. They were going to a desolate place, not to relax, 
but to rest. This wasn't about a lavish vacation. Uh, This was about rest. So Jesus does this out of a concern for his disciples, out of care for them, out of even compassion for them. Now, what is compassion exactly as far as it's used in the Bible? Now, the word isn't used until verse 34, but I think it might be helpful to define it at this point. What is compassion? Now, many preachers will point out that the word for compassion, the word that's translated compassion, splachnon, refers to inward parts, literally intestines or bowels. So that means it's an emotion so strong, so deep, that you feel it in your gut. And we use language similar today, although maybe not as gross, uh, saying we feel with our hearts. It's not literally our hearts pump blood. So it's it's similar. Compassion, then, is deep-seated, genuine care and sympathy for others. Jesus has this for his disciples. So Jesus having compassion, what does that lead him to do? What does that lead him to do for his disciples? Now, before we speculate, we can look at the text itself. The first part of verse 31, we, we can see why Jesus feels this way. So he gave them an instruction. They're going to go away and they're going to rest. And the second part begins with an important word, verse 31. little word, for. He's giving a reason why he wants them to rest. He has compassion for them, which leads them to his calling to have rest because he saw they had no leisure even to eat. They were worn out. They were hungry. They were tired. You've probably had days where you had so much work where you had to skip lunch. Here it is, the disciples. So he called them to get away and rest. So we zoom out on chapter 6. All that Jesus has told the disciples. At one point at the beginning, he tells them, go out and work. And here they come back and he says, come away and rest. We zoom out, we see the whole picture. We see a picture of balance. It's not all in on work like a drill sergeant. Neither is it all in on rest like a vacation lifestyle in Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville. No, this is a balance between work and rest. Friends, I think this balance eludes us. I think it It is fleeting. We can't hold on to this. We can't maintain this. I think that's a problem, especially in America. We don't know what side to go all in on, and we can't balance between the two. Sometimes we pursue only rest and need to work better. When that happens, work is just a means for us to get rest. The only reason we work is so that we can enjoy weekends and vacations. Other times, though, we pursue only work and need to rest. When that happens, we're all about productivity. And even when we have time to rest, we can't rest because we can't put out of our minds work. We're either all in on one or the other. Now, I think there's space here to consider some practical ways to help that balance between work and rest. For those of us here who are able to create their own schedules, uh, that can be an opportunity for either laziness, so there's no one's holding you accountable, but it could also be an opportunity 
uh, just for guilt-driven work that I have to fill all of my time. Uh, for those of you here who are overwhelmed by work, um, realize that rest is important. So maybe it's working efficiently and trying to get rid of distractions so that you can rest. Or maybe it's just trusting that you need to put this away because putting it away will mean you work better tomorrow. Well, for those of us here who aren't overwhelmed by work but maybe are overwhelmed by busyness, maybe it's time to rearrange priorities and drop what's unessential. Well, there are lots of practical ways to consider balancing work and rest, just like Jesus does for his disciples. But I think um, more than practical advice, we also need to remember that the gospel of Jesus shapes how we approach work and rest. The gospel shapes how we approach work and rest. First verse that comes to my mind, maybe it comes to your mind, famous, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. That's the kind of verse that goes great underneath a picture of a sunset. But I actually think that verse is a lot harder than it seems. It's a lot harder than it seems. That because, that's because to stop working requires that we trust Jesus enough to do that. We trust Jesus enough to stop working what God can only do. To stop working to save ourselves. To stop working to atone for our sins. Coming to Jesus and resting in him requires trusting him enough to stop working yourself. This kind of rest is hard. But it's only when we rest in Jesus that we are able to do the work he has for us. Meaning that we work not for rest, we work from rest. So the work of obedience, the work of following Jesus is possible only because we've received rest from him. We've received his finished work. And we know that Jesus has given us all that we need. Well, Jesus shows compassion, not just for his disciples. That's just the beginning of the story. He also shows compassion to the crowd. Look with me at verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So Jesus and his disciples go away. They go away to get some rest. And here again, the disciples get more of a taste of what Jesus' experience was like. So back in chapter 1, Jesus tries to do the same thing. Goes away by himself, desolate place to get rest. And guess who shows up? His disciples. Interrupting that rest. And so here now, Jesus is with his disciples. They're going away to rest. And they all, as a group, get interrupted by, in that rest by the crowds. So we might speculate, when the disciples see these crowds, what they were thinking. Here we are, out here, going around all these villages, getting rejected on behalf of Christ, and we can't even get five minutes of peace and quiet. Sheesh. 
I expect I might be the same way. Irritated, entitled, don't want to be bothered. Now we can speculate what the disciples might have thought when they saw these crowds interrupting their rest. But we don't have to speculate what Jesus thought when he saw these crowds. He had compassion on them. So just sidebar, short one. Jesus' people should reflect him by being patient and kind, not irritable and grouchy. Why did Jesus have compassion? Again, friends, don't have to speculate. Look at the text. He had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. One commentator points out that if this was an area with green grass, as we see in verse 39, and most people back then, if they wore white robes, then from a distance, this crowd would have looked like a flock of sheep on the side of a hill. And so these people supposedly had shepherds. They had priests and teachers, but those people failed to nourish them. They had other leaders, like who we saw last week. They had Herod, who wasn't concerned, though, about his people. He was concerned only about himself. So here, Jesus sees a people who are needy, are purposeless, and who have no one to lead and provide for them. Back in Ezekiel 34, God promised to provide a shepherd that would feed his people. And here is Jesus feeding his people. So Jesus' care for the aimless and needy crowd who crashes his rest leads him to feed them. But just how does he do that? How does Jesus feed this crowd? What does he do first? We could speed past this detail. First, he feeds them with spiritual food. The first thing he does is teach. Then, as we see in the rest of the story, then he feeds them with physical food. My friends, it's it's a reminder. Who knows better what we need and the priorities of what we need? Who knows better than that than the one who, who designed us and made us? So if Jesus' compassion for his disciples shows us a balance in life, his compassion for the crowds shows us a balance in ministry. So like work and rest, so are spiritual and physical needs. We can focus too much on one to the detriment of the other. So we can say, just preach the gospel until we are blue in the face. But, friends, gospel preaching should produce gospel living. That's clear throughout the New Testament. You don't believe that? Read a parable like the Good Samaritan. The fact that the Good Samaritan didn't act shows that he didn't get it. Gospel preaching produces gospel living. It's not just spiritual. The spiritual produces the physical. But we can say also, just love people and do good to them until we're blue in the face. But what's the basis of that? What do we base our actions on? And what about people's relationship to God? Friends, we love people well and minister to them well by doing what Jesus did here. We teach the gospel first. 
reflecting that our relationship with the Lord and where we spend eternity is what matters most. But on the basis of that teaching, we show that we actually believe that teaching when we love others and provide for them physically as much as we are able. We can't do everything, but we can't do nothing. So if you remove one from the equation, spiritual or the physical, you take out the legs from the whole thing. We can't say that we love our neighbor if we don't want him to know Jesus. At the same time, we can't say we love our neighbor if we see him in need and refuse to help. Both go together. And Jesus' heart, his compassionate heart, reflects these priorities. Well, we haven't even got to the juicy part of the story yet. And we're getting there right now. But in the build-up to the miracle, we saw the compassion of Jesus. In the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 itself, we see the sufficiency of Jesus. Think about for a minute what it would mean for Jesus to be compassionate about the disciples and the crowd's physical and spiritual needs, to be compassionate about that, but not sufficient to provide for that. Think about what that would look like. Makes me think of one of my favorite commercials of all time, over 10 years ago now, from Walgreens. Uh, it's, uh, commercial begins in a kitchen, typical home, a uh, husband and a wife. Uh, he's sitting down in the kitchen. She comes in and enters, presumably it's breakfast or something, a typical routine. And she's opening a cabinet, getting things ready, and asks him, uh, kind of brightly, uh, do you know what today is? And he says, kind of -of matter-of-factly, of course I do. And she says, did you get me a present? No, I didn't, he said coldly. Flowers? No. A card? No. I meant to. You meant to. She asked, strangely brightly. I really thought about it, he says earnestly. I love you, she she returns wholeheartedly. And then the narrator of the commercial comes back and ends it and says, if only it really was the thought that counts. (laughs) That's the last tagline. It's good that Jesus is compassionate, but it's better that he can do something about it. So what happens after he has compassion? We see again, Jesus first interacts with his disciples, and then he interacts with the crowd. He'll prove that he is sufficient to make good on his compassion to both of those groups, to his disciples and to the crowd. So verse 35, the disciples notice it's growing late, probably late afternoon, when they would have had to start making plans for supper, when they would have said to one another, do you want to go out to eat? And they say, I don't know. Uh, where do you want to go? He said, I don't know. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? What the disciples suggest to Jesus is reasonable at face value. Essentially, they say, Jesus, there are thousands of people here. And we're not at Golden Corral. These people are going to get antsy if they don't get some food soon. We should wrap wrap things up so that they can go. If it was Sunday, they would say, like, right now, it's noon. People expect things to be done by noon so they can go eat. It's not a slight. I I want to respect your time. We'll be done soon. (laughs) 
But you, you notice that it, it's not the crowd that makes this request. It was the disciples who made this request. The crowds didn't say, hey, we're hungry, give us something. No, the disciples assumed that. The crowd's silence seems to indicate they did, that they didn't care it was coming up on supper time. They had Jesus, the Son of God, teaching them right in front of them. That was their focus. But anyway, the disciples recognized that this would be a big problem that they couldn't solve on their own. Notice in verse 44, the very end, it says that there were 5,000 men. That is, sometimes the word men refers to both men and women. Here, it doesn't do that. So we compare with the book of Matthew. It says 5,000 men, and it says besides women and children. So if we're generous, if we include women and children in this group, that would mean 15,000 to 20,000 people. To make it real a little bit, if you've ever been to Quicken Loans Arena downtown, it holds 20,562 people. And imagine Jesus telling you that you have to feed every single one of them. Now, I don't even think my mom, the superwoman cook that she is, could feed 20,562 people. But do you see the disciples, they think in practical terms as soon as Jesus tells them this. They think of how much it would cost. They say 200 denarii. Now, denarii was usually a day's wage, meaning this would be almost a year's salary to feed these people. So for us, let's say you wanted to feed everybody in the queue and you wanted to buy from the concession stand. Uh, God bless the workers at the concession stand at this point. Uh, if they wa you wanted to buy all of them a hot dog and nachos. Generously speaking, uh, hot, a hot dog, believe it or not, is usually like $4.50, and nachos are $5.50. If you wanted to buy a hot dog and nachos for every single person in Quicken Loans Arena, I did the math, it was hard, but I did it, you would spend $205,683. Do you have that kind of exposable income? If you do, you talk to me afterwards. I'm kidding. This is how the disciples thought of the situation. But friends, it even gets worse. And it's not that, it's not that they just missed out on having enough. Like they barely, they barely missed out on it. Oh, maybe next time, Jesus, we, we got enough for 15000 not 20000 No, no, no. They have barely anything at all. Five loaves and two fish. And Jesus sees them. He says, give me that. And he goes to work. And Jesus organized the massive crowd. He prayed, usually a, a typical prayer before eating bread. And then he served up a meal. Do you notice who takes the food to the crowd? Who is it that does it? You look at verse 41. I love this detail. And taking the five loaves and the two fish... He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves, and hear this, and he gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. Could you imagine the disciples delivering food to group after group, to section after section in the queue? They got to go back to Jesus, take as much as they can, and run back to each group and give them more. And they're running back and saying, all right, surely we're out by now. No, 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 it just keeps on coming. 
you would have to think that. And remember how this began. Jesus told the disciples to feed the people. And in the end, even though they had no idea how it would happen, the disciples fed the people. And really, that seems like reasonable thinking at the beginning, that that there was no way this could happen. That Jesus, we can't do this on our own. It seems like reasonable thinking. Friends, I would say this is ignorant, prideful, and even faithless thinking. The Son of God was right in front of them. Did they really think that Jesus didn't know the situation? Did they really think that Jesus didn't know how much food was required for a crowd this size? Now, what the disciples saw was an impossible obstacle. But what Jesus saw was a possible opportunity. The disciples saw an impossible obstacle, but what Jesus saw was a possible opportunity. There are lots of preachers uh, who tell the story of two traveling shoe salesmen. Uh, The first one heads into a new town. He's never been there before. He's trying to get acquainted, get the lay of the land, get the feel, get the vibe of the people there. He's driving around, and he, he noticed something strange about this town. He's traversing about, and he he realizes nobody here wears shoes. And he says, are you kidding me? How am I supposed to sell shoes to people who don't wear shoes? So he packs up, heads on to the next town. Well, then other traveling shoe salesman enters this same town, traverses about, gets a feel of the land, see what's its deal, and he makes the same discovery. Nobody here wears shoes. And he says, are you kidding me? This is a gold mine. This is the best market for shoes I've ever seen. Everybody needs them. When one saw an obstacle, the other saw an opportunity. So what say you? Do you reflect the disciples' approach or Jesus' approach? Do you have a defeatist attitude or a faith-filled attitude? Do you bemoan your life and circumstances and even something like the state of our country and say that this is an impossible obstacle? Or do you see it as an opportunity for the Lord to show his sufficient grace and power? So that boss you don't like, that retirement you feel aimless in, that homework that gets under your your skin, fill in the blank with anything else, These might seem like obstacles that would bring us to our end. But friends, they can be, they can be opportunities for God to show how powerful he is and how sufficient he is. So following the Lord, friends, is hard. Jesus literally says, the way is hard. If we look to ourselves, all we would see are obstacles. We look to the Lord, we would continually see opportunities. God, show up here and show your power and grace here. So for the disciples, in the end, they saw how impossible turned into possible and how an obstacle turned into an opportunity. When they saw that, the final lesson wasn't, oh, the power was in you all along. No, it wasn't that. 
The, the final lesson was the power was in Jesus all along. And friends, this is just a small picture of our salvation. You might be here this morning and think, Lord, I am anything but impressive. I have less than five loaves and two fish. My situation is impossible. Well, friend, that is each one of us here. And the mistake that the disciples made and that we still make is that we look at our situation, that we say we have nothing, we say that it's impossible, and we try to take care of it ourselves. And instead, we must take it to Jesus. Look at what Jesus does with nothing. Look at what Jesus does with the impossible. We're not here because we are impressive or sufficient to save. We're here because Jesus is impressive and sufficient to save. In fact, we won't really embrace Jesus until we realize that all we have to offer him is our sin that nailed him to the cross. That's it. So yes, our situation is impossible but the one who fed the 5,000 and the one who rose from the dead proves that he is more than sufficient for our impossible situation. Okay, one last part of the story, and we're going to wrap up. Jesus proves his sufficiency to the disciples, and he proves it also to the crowds. Look at me with verse, at verse 42 and following. It says this, And they all ate... And were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. On one level, we can relate to what it's like to be satisfied after a meal. A good meal. Not stuffed. Didn't eat too much. Didn't eat too little. Ate just right. Feel good. Didn't have to send anything back, as rare as that might be. Everything was perfect. On another level, though, we might have a hard time knowing what it's like to be satisfied by food if we've never been desperate for food. Now, maybe some of you here have felt that before, but I'm not so sure that's our common experience in the day and place we live. By the standards of Jesus' day and by the standards of around the world, pretty much any other country. Most of us eat like royalty. Now, I'm not saying you have to feel bad about that, but I am saying it's good to know that. And it's likely that the majority of this crowd that Jesus fed never ate a meal like that. So, of course, that's obvious. He turned nothing into everything. Well, yeah, but they never ate a meal it's likely they never ate a meal that they could eat anything they wanted and as much as they wanted. That was probably the experience of most of the people there. But what happened? It says everybody ate and everybody was satisfied. This isn't a nice story where people pick, take a picnic lunch and shared with each other so that everybody had a little bit of something. This isn't a magic trick or an illusion because people didn't eat fake food. They ate actual food. This is a story of Jesus feeding and satisfying hungry people 
even his leftovers would have been able to satisfy. Twelve baskets full, the number twelve, very symbolic, often referring to the twelve tribes of Israel. Even Jesus' leftovers were sufficient to feed Israel. That's how mighty this guy is. Friends, this is what God does. God is sufficient to feed hungry people. Like the crowds in Israel in the wilderness who begged for Egypt because they had no idea where they would get food. God made it clear. He was sufficient to provide what they need. So here, Jesus does what ultimately only God can do. So who are these people who Jesus feeds? Who are they? What are the qualifications to get in that banquet? you got bouncers on the side of the hill saying, so all right, why should I let you in? Oh, I know Jesus. I'm a good friend of his. Are those the qualifications? Or is it like Herod's banquet back earlier in chapter 6, where Herod invites only bigwigs, only his uh, military commanders and nobles and other uh, you know, people with lots of money? I don't know. What's the qualification? The only qualification to eat at Jesus' banquet is if you're hungry. That's it. Friends, we are all hungry. I'm not just talking about physical hunger. I know you might feel hungry right now. I'm talking about in our life, and our purpose, in our meaning, we are hungry, starving even. Maybe we can mask it for a little while. Maybe we can eat a snack, but we're going to get hungry again because we look to satisfy our hunger from things that are insufficient to do it. Uh, uh, from, I heard a talk from Trevin Wax. Uh, he refers to a book called Good Faith by David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons. And they share the results that 84% of Americans believe enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. 84% of Americans. In other words, 8 out of 10 people believe that the ultimate purpose of life is being selfish. I mean, this is just what it is. 86% of Americans say that to enjoy yourself, you have to pursue the things you desire the most. 91% of Americans affirm this statement. To find yourself, look within yourself. So to summarize how Americans think, we all want longing and satisfaction and in me, in meaning. And most Americans believe that the purpose of life is enjoyment. And that comes from looking deep within us to find our true self while pursuing whatever makes us happy. Are Christians any better or different? Well, let's see what the stats say. The statistics say... 66% of church-going Christians. I'm not just talking about people who say they're Christians. People who go to church. 66% of church-going Christians say that the highest goal of life is enjoying yourself. 72% of church-going Christians say you should pursue the things that you desire the most. 76% say that looking within yourself is the way to find yourself. 76%. Apparently, as Trevin Wax says, when it comes to questions about purpose, about meaning, about satisfactions, Christians look an awful lot alike the rest of the world. 
So what do we do? Well, we have to expose the things that ultimately won't satisfy and give us meaning. That's a good work. But friends, I said we have to do even more than that. Not just expose. We have to say, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is a relief to hungry people who can't find lasting food. He's a relief to us who have been searching within and without and can't find meaning and purpose and satisfaction and salvation. Maybe you think you're not hungry. But friend, trying to convince yourself that you're not spiritually hungry, hungry is like trying to convince yourself you're not physically hungry. You may say it all that you want, but you will feel it. You will feel it. And what this says, feeding of the 5,000, all ate and were satisfied. We are hungry. And it's not just that Jesus satisfies. He completely satisfies. And he is the only one who can satisfy. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, teach us to cling to Christ and no one else, to go to him for life and meaning and satisfaction and no one else. We are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. So, God, we ask that you would bind our wandering hearts to you and convince us again, be merciful and patient with us again, God, that you are compassionate and that you can make good on your compassion. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.